Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Have you heard? I'm hosting an online event, Brunch for Birth Trauma, on Saturday, May 7th, 2022, raising awareness and funds for birth trauma and the Australasian Birth Trauma Association. It is going to be an epic morning with an amazing lineup of speakers, raffle prizes, Pilates workshop, and even guided meditation. And the first 100 tickets sold receive a goodie bag with goodies from some of our amazing sponsors, Bohemian Skin, Modi Body, and Made to Milk. Don't miss out. Grab your tickets now. For more information and to purchase your tickets, head to www.thepowerofbirth.net forward slash events. I hope you'll join me. See you there. Birth plans for the most part tend to be controversial, insufficient, and not very well respected. So should we have one? And what goes in it? Does your birth just all come down to luck? How do you navigate the system when you don't even know what questions to ask? Well, let me introduce you to Catherine Bell founder of The Birth Map, mother, cartographer, doula, degree collector, and just an absolute ball of fun. Catherine has created The Birth Map with women like you and me in mind, and we chat about what exactly a birth map is and why it is revolutionizing birth preparation and ultimately maternity care. Okay, Catherine, can you introduce yourself? Give us a bit of a background, who you are, what you do. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Bell. I call myself the birth cartographer because I've been on a bit of a journey since becoming a mum. I thought I was a feminist before I became a mum, but it was only in becoming a mum that I realised there was this whole area of being female that was completely under the rug. Let's not talk about that. We don't talk about mothers, you know. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and it's just, it, it, it fired me up. It's like suddenly mm. I realised there was all this stuff I didn't know that really was my birthright. As, as a female, I should have known that there was going to be a placenta after the baby was born. It seems obvious now, but at the time it didn't occur to me. I hadn't thought about it. And the bleeding mm. after birth and that breastfeeding was a learned skill, not just something you suddenly did. There were so many things that as I became a mother, I realized even though I have a mother and a sister and aunties, there's all this lost knowledge. So I endeavored on doula training mm. and in doing that, I got fired up again when I came across birth plans and realised just how rubbish they are. <laughs> like, this is not cutting it. There's, there's so much missing, so much detail. So as a doula, I started pumping up the birth plan template that I was using and adding in questions that I wished I'd known to ask, that mothers in my mother's group said, I wish I'd known to ask that. And then I accidentally wrote a book. And in writing that book, which at the time was a little A4. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, whoa. At, at, it was a little A4 um, booklet that I, had, that I was just self-printing and then doing all the binding myself. And at the time it was called, you know, Plan um, Bella Birth because I used to call myself Bella Birth. And as that sort of evolved, I thought, this, this is not a birth plan anymore. This is something different. And it was when I was pregnant with my fourth that it occurred to me that what I had was a map. And it, it was serendipitous. It just came to me one day. I was kind of drawing out my my plan with all its different pathways. And I thought, geez, that looks like a map. Map. Birth map. Google birth map. 
I think I just invented something. I cannot find anything about birth maps or birth mapping, yet the language we were often using was journey, pathways, and I thought, this just makes so much sense. And back then, I, I believe it was the year 2013, um, and, it, and it was a long time ago, and I had a Facebook page, and it was doing quite well. I was, you know, even though I had nothing to sell or it, I just wanted to tell women what I was learning, because if I didn't know it, they probably don't know it, mm. so I better tell them about it. And so this page was growing on Facebook, and I showed, I thought, I'll just put it out there. I drew up a, a picture and it looked like like the London Underground or a railway train map um, with just the little pathways out there in the different colour codes and I just shared that on that Facebook page and the number of light bulbs that were going off, whoa, what is this? This is brilliant. This just makes so much sense. So I thought, hmm, I will work with this idea and see you know, what comes of it. Um, and it was about 2016 that Facebook page got deleted. Um, it had over a thousand um, followers on it at the time, um, which at the time was one of the bigger doula pages on Facebook. And I just got sick of being banned. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the woman that appears on the front cover of the, um, the book, the new book, was why I got banned from Facebook. That drawn nipple, that, yep, that drawn nipple had me blocked out of my page for a whole year, having been reported for nudity and <gasps> obscenities on Facebook. And that just pissed me off so <gasps> majorly that if you'll notice in the book, every single dot point is her nipple. It's like, take that universe. Nipples are not offensive. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for four years, I left Facebook. I'm like, if this is against community standards, this is not a community I want to be a part of. You can exploit women. You can sexualize yeah, women. Absolutely. You can have pages devoted absolutely. to how to rape women. But empower them? Yeah, no, that's mm -hmm. not okay. But then around the um, beginning wow. of 2020... It became apparent that I did need to be back on social media to share the story. Um, you know, I had this book that yeah. I was trying to make people aware of and it was getting traction from word of mouth. But So I started Instagram and almost overnight I had a 1,000 followers. It's, it just grew so rapidly. I went, oh, wow, gee, this social media gig's pretty easy. Um, but, um, but it's just that I had a story that made sense. And the number of women that mm. um, once they know the concept of birth map, and it's not just a name change, but that in itself was powerful. Once they understand the concept, it's like, yeah, here I come, look out world, I'm a powerful woman. And so that was pretty motivating mm -hmm. for me to see the response um, to the birth map and so that's why I call myself the birth cartographer yeah. cartography being the art of map making and um, and plus I've got a scientific background so you know the geek in me just went oh yeah I'm gonna roll with that so uh, life before BC yeah. was science communication and marine biology I've got I have literally wallpapered my toilet room with degrees <laughs> that I've never used. <laughs> because in because I was going to say you had an impressive resume already, <laughs> and I, but all of that education reinvented itself in the the, the yep. motherhood sphere. Like, how can I use? science communication background, my scientific background to bring this concept to women. I don't have a marketing degree, so I, it didn't feel like something I should sell to women. They have a right mm -hmm. to know how the system works. It's mm -hmm. more than just physiological birth now. We're not just preparing for birth physiology. We're, we're planning and preparing to navigate a system that is not designed to support physiological birth. 
but most women don't realize that that's yeah. what they need to do so that's in a very big nutshell absolutely <laughs> how I got to where I am with the map today honestly I couldn't think of someone more suited it's almost like everything aligned for you to do this <laughs> yes you are the perfect person to do this. Yeah, all you all really my are. roads led to birth photography. And <laughs> isn't that just phenomenal? I love that. Um, and I've obviously read your book. Your second edition has just come out. And I was saying before we started recording, it's so much more in depth. And I'm sure this is something that will be updated, um, you know, as the system sort of evolves if evolve is even the right word. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I love it. I love it. And I wanted to sort of dive in here because birth plan. So there's two sides to this, and this is obviously just my observations, right? So on one side, we have people who are really pro birth plan. Make sure you have a plan for all the same reasons that you've just said, you know, it's a system that doesn't support your physiology or basic physiological birth. Um, you know, you need to know what you want. You need to think about your birth and, you know, people talk about uh, manifesting and all this sort of stuff, right? So there's that side of birth plans. And then the other side is why bother? Yep. Call them preferences or wishes or desires because you're probably not going to get what you want and don't be so foolish. And, you know, this is sort of the narrative on the other side. So I look at these two different stories and I just think, I think a lot of it stems from what happened to that person and that's why they say that. Um, and so when I thought about it, I thought about it as a birth toolbox, right? We just need all these different tools and navigation systems and blah, blah, blah to be able to understand birth in the modern world, but then also still have a say in your birth because you shouldn't lose that regardless of what happens to you. You always have the last say. So when I stumbled across the birth map, I was like, this is what I've been looking for. This is the exact thing that I have been looking for that I was not able to create myself because I have tried. <laughs> and it's, it's just so extensive. The different pathways are just so ex extensive, but you have really simplified it in a way that's easy to understand, particularly for a first timer, because that can be something that's really difficult. My question to you is, I know that was very long-winded, the difference between a birth plan and a birth map and why birth mapping as opposed to birth planning and birth preferences and birth wishes and desires? Why a birth map? What is the difference? So initially, the, the difference came down to language. Birth plan, as you pointed out, says fixed, setting up for disappointment. I've got one idea and if it's not that, then it's a failure. Uh, if, if things don't go according to plan, then you were, you were foolish for having a plan and it was something wrong with you. You didn't prepare enough. So plan was carrying all this weight of um, expectation that wasn't always aligned with reality. So the birth plan started about 40 years ago. Penny Simpkin and Carla Ranke um, came up with the, the concept and it was meant to address the power imbalance that was occurring in the maternity system, even 40 years ago. And to give women a voice, give women permission to ask questions, give women permission to say, this is who I am and this is what I need, but also to ask questions like, what are my options? What else is available to me? But the pushback in the US was pretty immediate. Professional autonomy was under, under threat. How dare these women tell me how to do my job? I'm qualified, they're not. Mm machine that goes ping you know what am I supposed to do doc nothing you're not qualified it's well, the parody of that um unfortunately it's funny because it's true in the UK Sheila Kitzinger picked up the birth plan concept from Penny Simpkin took it back to the UK and started to revolutionize what was going on very quickly the medical system in in the UK embraced it but in a kind of a, a straw man argument kind of a way in that they said, sure, you can have what you want. Sure, you have a voice. Here's your template. Um, fill it in. So by default, plans were limiting options because they were putting people into boxes or restrictions. 
but they were also more realistic in that if a care provider limited you to those options, that's usually because that's the limitations of their skills, that's the limitations of what they can actually offer, but it's also the thing that helps them manage their facility better. So you get lots of really good clues. If that uh, template does not offer you the options you want, find a different care provider. But for most women, they didn't realise there were different models of care. So the word plan was problematic because of that idea of being fixed. And then it became further problematic when the system started to use it in, a, in ways that weren't what was originally intended. So Penny Simpkin had a pamphlet that said what birth plans were intended to be about communication, asking questions, setting different pathways but there was no structure to it and there was certainly no connection between the woman and the care provider. So by the early 2000s, the internet's now taking over. People are starting to find their information online rather than with the care provider. By 2010, Facebook was taking over. We've now got groups developing. Facebook went from sharing little fish pictures with each other and flowers to um, now we've got these groups and these groups are now sharing information inside an echo chamber, if you like, but the conversations were not going over to the care provider. So with the birth map, not only did I change the name to differentiate it, but I added a lot more structure into it. It's now um, something that says, not you have to do things a particular way, but here's some questions to ask. Here are some pathways to be aware of so that you can determine what is best for you in a realistic setting. It also encourages communication with the care provider because if we don't find out what's realistically possible in the facility that we're choosing to birth in, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment because we've got an expectation that the care provider will care. But in reality, they're limited mm -hmm. by their skill set by the policy within the hospital, by how many other people they're looking after at the same time. And so what does that facility look like? In Australia, we have 11 different models of care. And within that, there is over 800 different approaches to birth. Some of those are within the same hospital. Wow. So you've got your birth centre, then you've got your midwifery um, group practice, where you'll, you'll be seen by a group of midwives, then your obstetric care, your high-risk care. And, and that can all be happening in one facility. And then you've just got standard care where you'll get a random midwife um, at each visit and then on the day. Um, and there's not a lot of chance for um, building a relationship. So with the birth map, it puts the power back with the, the women. Well, I don't say, I, I actually, we never miss out on our power. It's always there. What we miss out on is the opportunity to express it. And as Spider-Man, I don't know who says it in Spider-Man because I've never seen it. I just know the quote. Uh, With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> but it's the other way around. With great responsibility comes great power. Adolescence is a process of mm. coming into our power by taking on more responsibility, by becoming more mature, more capable, um, you know, your frontal lobes develop. It's a process where you can mm -hmm. gain responsibility and in doing so, express your power. Matrescence, which is the process women go through for, um, you know, from pregnancy throughout to the maybe the year or so after their baby is born, it's a long process similar to, to adolescence. The brain is rewiring and we're taking on more responsibility. If we can step into that responsibility and own our experience, own finding out the no, what, what the knowledge gaps are, own our decisions, then we can express that power. We can really step into that power and shine. And when you see women do this, you get goosebumps. It's incredible what she realizes she's capable of. Mm. And with birth mapping, we bring in the partner into that process. There's probably a patrescence that occurs, um, maybe a, a, whether it's a male partner or a female partner, or 
a, a living friend, if you're a single mum, whoever's your primary supporter, if they're spending a lot of time with you, they'll go through a similar process, not necessarily on the same hormonal level as women, but by default, their world starts to circulate around the mother-baby dyad. And we know that men who co-sleep with their breastfeeding partner, and they have lower testosterone levels. There is physical changes that can happen as well. But when we bring the partner into the birth mapping process, Mm. we shift partners from a fear or protector mode where, you know, I don't know how many times I hear, I want to have a home birth, but my partner says no. So we're, we're going to the hospital. Why do they get to have the final say? Why are they saying no? Mm. They're scared. Fear is an opportunity. Fear is a gift. When we know and identify our fears, we can replace it with knowledge. And most of the time when we replace that fear with knowledge, those partners who are refusing a home birth say, oh, wow, you know what? I reckon we should have a home birth. Oh, good. It's your idea. Let's do it now. (laughs) That kind of thing. So... Um, so in, in the book, what, um, what, one of my, my favorite part of the whole book is the fast birth pathway, because this is the pathway that actually focuses on physiological birth. And it's the pathway we consider the potential of an unassisted birth. So, you know, what if we, um, can't make it to the hospital in time? What if our midwife can't make it to us is usually the question that's being asked for that pathway. So if a partner is saying, no to a home birth all right let's park that idea for a bit we'll park that decision let's do our work on the fast birth pathway and just consider the what if um this is an unassisted birth and nine times out of ten that the the partner will say is that it is that all that's involved in birth it's like yeah catch baby put it on mum's chest don't cut the cord keep them warm it's really quite simple um, when it comes down to normal yeah. physiology. And so then they're not scared anymore and then they can start the conversation of the expected pathway with a much more open mind. So the fast birth pathway can be quite magical in that respect. So that's where the, the mapping process is different to birth planning. Birth planning's often done in isolation, the woman on her own, not not asking many questions of the care provider, And the partner's often just um, surplus to, you know, getting told what to do or dictating what's going to happen. And the accommodating woman, as we are all groomed to be from from young, young age, we um, put their needs above our own. And so then what happens is we see high rates of birth disappointment or birth trauma because she doesn't want to be in the hospital. And so she's not comfortable. She's tense. And, of course, ends up having a, a more interventionalist um, pathway whilst he's scared. So he wants the intervention because that will help fix things. So that's a really common story that we see un- unfolding. And the birth mm. mapping process helps to, to ease some of that stress in advance so that they can enter the birth more confidently and as a team rather than feeling a bit resentful of each other, which is not a great way to start the parenting journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I particularly loved about your birth map book was that um, with these pathways, you also included a lot more detail about um, specific things. So for example, a cesarean and the three or four different kinds of cesarean, like as a first timer who was planning a vaginal birth, it's sort of not something that you consider or really pay attention to. And then some people may even tell you not to pay attention to it because you don't want to be thinking about that either, right? But I think it helps to know because if it doesn't happen to you, but it happened to a friend, then you can also relay that information or be like, hey, I actually read a book who has all this stuff in it. Here, read it. It's really informative. Maybe you'll get something out of it. So I really think that just even having uh, this knowledge, whether or not it applies to you, like this is this is what us women do, right? We talk about these things. You talk to a grandmother and she'll still tell you about how she felt in her births. That's something that I've started to really, really notice. Your births stay with you forever. You don't forget. You, and you particularly don't forget if it either was empowering 
or was traumatic. They seem to be the two, <laughs> the two top things. So that was something that I particularly loved. But going with what you were saying about language just now, that was something that stood out to me in the birth map as well, was you really made a point of paying attention to the language you use as the birther, but then also your care providers and what the implications of the language means. So tell me some of these implications of specific language that's used in birth and why it's so important. So uh, when I do the birth cartographer training with care providers, this process has been really interesting because they're so um, embedded in the system. They don't always realize that the client doesn't know what the word means. But the most common one is around the Mm -hmm. term delayed cord clamping. So a lot of women who are um, are looking at having a normal physiological birth, they're you know they're having a healthy pregnancy, they come across delayed cord clamping and they're like, yes, I want that or optimal cord clamping. Um, they've read about weight for white. They're, they're all over it. They know why it's important and they say, yes, that's what I want. So they very proudly write in their birth plan, we'll have delayed cord clamping. And so the birth unfolds and the baby is born and up onto the mother's chest and everything's going according to plan and then the cord's cut. And the mother's like, we were having delayed cord clamping. And the care provider's like, yeah, we waited three minutes. Or Mm -hmm. misunderstanding because she thought delayed cord clamping meant an hour, wait for white, 10 minutes. She had a different idea. But the care provider and the policy in that hospital, Mm -hmm. three minutes equals delayed cord clamping. And they honestly thought they'd done her a favour and followed her plans. So very important. What is delayed cord clamping in this facility? And if they say three minutes and they're really proud of that because they think they're doing something brilliant, you can say, ah, well, for me, um, I would need um, at least an hour or I want to wait until after the placenta is born or after we've fed the baby the first time, or we're not going to cut the cord because that's an option as well. We are going to provide, um, you know, the the vessel to put in the placenta and we'd like to take the placenta home, but we're not going to cut the cord until we're ready or at all potentially. So when women start using language that really clarifies what do you mean by this particular thing, And what does it mean to me? And the same with epidural. It's another one that's really downplayed uh, in society. A a lot of women um, go into birth thinking, yep, sign me up. I want the epidural as soon as I get there. Because the modern woman doesn't have to experience pain. We're told birth is incredibly painful. We're a pain avoidant society. Why would you birth without an epidural? There's no prizes. It's not a competition. What are you trying to prove? just get the epidural and it's kind of like taking a Panadol or something like that it's sort of downplayed to being fairly benign to a degree even though obviously taking Panadol is not without its risks particularly in early labor so I do encourage you to look that up so many things you've got to discover but the um but the the epidural then when you are told about the epidural you'll be told yes it's a you know thin needle in the back and then you can control the level of pain oh that sounds very civilized but then um when the time comes to have that epidural the epidural goes in then the catheter goes in then the drip goes in and then if the labor is not progressing the cinto goes in and you're now a starfish on the bed being monitored and on a time limit You've got a new pathway to consider. It's not just a consideration of the risks of the epidural. It's a consideration of what will the birth look like after the epidural. There's now a higher risk that you'll have an assisted delivery. This is forceps and vacuum. Mm -hmm. that, That is kind of the taboo of the birth world. We don't really talk about that. Maybe 10% of women end up on that particular pathway you're more likely on that pathway if you've had an epidural or an induction so then once we understand the pathways we can move back and go well maybe maybe an epidural's not not a great idea what are my alternatives so we use our brain 
benefits, risks, alternatives, in intuition, and nothing. So we can go through it. Okay, I understand the risks and benefits of an epidural. What happens if I do nothing? What if I'm experiencing pain I can't handle? That's going to be pretty stressful. Well, what alternatives are there? Oh, well, there's TENS machines and um, sterile water injections or the bath or a shower. You can wriggle around on a ball. You can walk. There's Rebozo. There is now this list of options that help you avoid an epidural. Oh, we're, we're stepping back in our preparations and now new pathways are opening up. So instead of talking about risks, mm -hmm. we're talking about opportunities so in the book, I've got a, a section called Danger, Risk and Opportunity. And I use the example of there's a risk she could birth at home. There's a danger she could birth at home. There's an opportunity she could birth at home. Let's reframe that. Change it from fear-based to knowledge-based. Where's our opportunities? How can we make this the best possible birth, no matter which pathway we end up on? And that's where the language around the caesareans became more nuanced as well because emergency versus planned. Well, not everybody who has a planned caesarean wants one. So the, the connotation around a planned caesarean is that's it's right. usually by her choice or willingness, but it could be for a reason that's out of her control. So I tend to use um, emergency caesarean versus non-emergency caesarean as before labour and after labour, breaking it down into four different types because how we prepare is different. And the non-emergency before labour caesarean means we've got more time. We know why that caesarean's happening and we can come to terms with why it's happening if it is a difficult decision for us or we can celebrate the joy and relief that it's happening because perhaps we were afraid of a vaginal pathway. No one way. This is, the, this is the really interesting caesarean because you might be able to have a conversation with your obstetrician about maternal assisted caesarean. It is possible. It, mm -hmm. Not all care providers are open to it because it does require a different skill base and confidence. You need to work within the confidence base of your medical care provider when you're using yeah. medical intervention. Because I don't want to ask a midwife to perform a cesarean. Um, she doesn't want me to ask her to do that. That's not her skill base. But in the same way that breech birth is often not an option for women, it's not because breech birth can't be vaginal. It's because the care provider does not have the skills to do that. If, um, if you can find a care provider that can meet your skill needs, brilliant. If you can't, then you have to make decisions within those limitations. And so discussing that with the care provider becomes critical so that you don't have expectations that can't be met, either because of their skill limitations or it might be that it's a low-risk hospital and they can't do some certain things unless there is a NICU um, within the facility. This has nothing to do with women's capabilities and everything to do with the limitations of the facility. So women are not being, uh, are not failures. They're being failed by a system that's not providing full scope of opportunity. So I'm not, I'm preaching to the converted yeah. there, I know, but. <laughs> well, well, I hope people are learning something because I find it particularly interesting that you brought up epidurals because that was very much my mentality long, 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 long before I fell pregnant and had babies. It was like, what do you mean you you're against an epidural like what's the problem but nobody would actually tell me the problem with the epidural and I found it really interesting that that was the the discussion around epidurals was not well you know there's a potential of me having forceps or vacuum and no thank you or there's a potential of me having the syntocinone um, drip which no thank you like that was not the discussion around epidurals it was just I just don't want one and so for me coming into the birth world and being socially conditioned which is you know what happens with us females in birth. And I'm like, well, I'm not against an epidural. I don't particularly want one, but I'm not against it either because I can appreciate the fact that maybe I'm not going to deal with this well and maybe I'll need some help. 
I didn't know anything about brachycardia and a baby's heart rate dropping that was linked to an epidural. I didn't know that I would have four doctors rushing in and asking me whether I preferred forceps or a vacuum. Um, None of this was ever discussed with me with the midwife or, you know. So that was really confronting for me in those moments in particular. So, uh, yeah, that's why I thought it was interesting that you brought up epidurals. But I'm like, we really aren't talking about the cascade of interventions per intervention and what that actually means. Um, And that's what's so brilliant about the birth map as well, because that is something now that we have that can show you, okay, if you go down this pathway, this is what it will look like. Whereas we've never really had that before. Um, Yes. So I really, really love that. But I wanted to ask, you make a note of mentioning that informed decision-making is better um, over say informed consent what is the issue with consent consent oh now we're getting into the juicy stuff (laughs) oh consent is my absolute bugbear consent assumes you are going to say yes consent tells you i expect you to say yes i have a problem with consent in the medical world as well as in the sex world consent starts on the assumption Mm. That the yes is the good thing to do and the no is the bad thing to do. If you say no to sex, you are a bitch, you're a tease, you're a, you know, it's rejection. Um, That can come with a massive fear load. If there's a power imbalance when you say no and you feel a threat, how many times do you think women say Mm. yes to sex they don't want because they weigh it up quickly in their head and decide you know what I'm going to lay down and think of England because then it'll be over and they'll leave me alone and it's going to be safer than what might happen if I say no or resist and that can be true in marriage as well Mm -hmm. as in dating and um, and in random encounters Mm -hmm. and it's not that different in the medical world that power imbalance that occurs when we go into the medical facility, when we are asked for consent, it's often shaped in a way that says, I need you to consent. I just need you to sign this consent form. There's this assumption that you are going to say yes. And the language they use tends to be coercive, even though they are not necessarily consciously coercing you. And that's because in the medical world, consent has another layer, which is relieving the care provider of liability. They need you to consent so that they can document that you've consented so that if something goes wrong, it's on your head. Unless there is very clear negligence Mm -hmm. on their part, you said yes. But in reality... Your no is just as valid. It just needs to be documented. Discussion took place. Client declined, said no. I'd prefer them to write down. Client decided on this pathway and you're following the client's um, wishes, their informed decision, and it's documented. They're safe. Client's happy. But that's not the way it's set up. It's set up so that they have to get consent. There's quite a few policies in place where failure to get consent on the part of the care provider leads to disciplinary action for um, for them because they've got too many declines what are you doing why are these people declining you know this standard procedure well it it requires consent they said no I've documented the no well you're obviously not consenting them properly and so I, I wrote a poem some years ago um, called Consenting Number Three, which was um, published in the Ames Journal um, just before Christmas. And this was a bit of a surprise for me because I wrote it a long time ago. And when they published it, the immediate reaction from the midwives was, yeah, that's exactly what happens. The woman is invisible. The partner's usually sitting in the corner, completely unaware of what they can do they're scared and the woman's unheard and the the whole goal is to get consent 
move it on. It's on a conveyor belt. And so when I started changing mm-hmm. that language up and saying, when you hear the word consent, think decision. Train your brain to go consent. That means I have options. If you don't know what the options are, then the first question is, I'd like to discuss the alternatives. What are the risks of this procedure you're offering me? What are the benefits? What are the alternatives? And often listening to that gut, because a lot of times our gut does sort of say, alarm bell, alarm bell, something, you know, that spidey sense is, is there. And, and oftentimes in a dating situation, you 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 sit down to someone who they're buying you a drink, maybe you're being a bit love-bombed or you know, charmed in some way, but something in the back of your head is saying, not a safe person. Oftentimes that will happen to us in, during mm. pregnancy as well. Something will come up and our guts are saying, but I feel fine. There's nothing wrong with the baby. Why do I need to be induced at 37 weeks just because I've got twins? It doesn't make sense. Let's find out about things. And you might come across a story um, about twins that were born at 42 weeks at home and there was no problems. Oh, wow. So it is possible. I am one of, uh, I've got a twin sister and we were born at 39 weeks, uh, you know, a spontaneous birth. We were a five hour labor. I grew up hearing that story. My mum birthed twins and she's like, oh yeah, it was great. Mm. No worries at all. It was all her. It's just what our bodies evolved to do. With new information, she was able to make more informed decisions. She was able to determine what mattered to her and make different decisions. So from baby one to her second pregnancy with two babies, she she went on a different pathway because she had new information and new knowledge. When that information is kept away from us and the consent process often leaves out detail, here is the procedure I'm offering you Mm. and here's why I want you to have it. And if you don't know to say, well, what if I don't have it? What is my alternative? What are my other options? And what do they look like? How urgent is it? When I think of consent um, or how consent plays out in birth, um, sometimes care providers are telling rather than asking. So I'm just about to make an incision here. That's that's not consent, even in the slightest. But then also when you flip that, can I make an incision here and they ask you, yeah, like you were saying, the answer is yes or no. But then when you say no, what what are the implications of saying exactly. no? And then what question, what questions do I know what to ask if I say no? And so, and this is why I think the birth map is so powerful because we know all of this before we're we're even in the birth and room. That's the absolute difference. And I really think that that's how it should be. We need to know yes, beforehand big time the to- the moment the decision has to be made is not the moment for finding out the information in reality with a birth map when we do hit that decision point we already understand and the questions become clarifying or reminding if this then that yes. so we're ascertaining yes. what the situation is how urgent is it um, what are our actual options at this point? And that was something also that I loved about your book was that I didn't feel that there was any birth bias. Um, and this is something that I have noticed in the birth world, right? So we've got, we've got people who are really um, pro-free birth and they think everyone should be having their babies um, on their own, in the dark, in their home, blah, 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 right? And then we've got other people who feel that um, we should be leaving the system altogether, but also, but having that midwife for the just in case, you know, we don't, we don't want to rule anything out here. Like we, we still need that safety element, right? And then we've got other people who there's absolutely no way that they would be pro home birth or pro um, free birth and that they are very pro hospital because that's safe for them and that's the right thing to do and that's sensible and responsible and blah 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 so everybody I talk to I I recognize a birth bias and it's something that I've personally been trying to understand a lot of the time but 
that was something else that I really loved about your book. I didn't feel that there was this underlying agenda. There was no birth bias. And, you know, if you want the epidural, here you go. Here's all the information. Go down this pathway. See if that's what you want. And if it is, no judgment. If you don't want the epidural and you want to use something else, here are your other pathways and options. And, you know, and that's what I really, really loved. And something that you say over and over in your book is um, there is no one way. There is uh, only your way. And I love that. And because I really do think that births are so incredibly individual. And we talk about how the same woman can have different types of births and and that's something that's really powerful. And I think we need to pay more attention to that. Um, but yeah, that was something that stood out to me anyway. Um, I wanted to ask you, how can we approach birth without a bias? And how do you do this? Oh, this is kind of my superpower um, to some degree. And I don't know whether <laughs> um, a lot of it has probably come from having done uh, training with the Australian Breastfeeding Association. Um, alongside doing doula training, I did the Australian Breastfeeding Association counselling and educator training back in um, 2011. And in that training, as, as you do in doula training as well, is you have to unpack your own story first. You have to pull yourself apart and say, mm-hmm. where are my biases? which also includes where are my non-negotiables? And this might be uh, religious or philosophical stances that you have or it might be based on a previous trauma that you have, which helps you identify if I'm working with a woman who does fit into that box, I can refer her on. How do I find out who the best referral is? So your bias is not a Mm -hmm. bad thing. Just like fear is a gift, your bias is a gift. If you can recognize it and understand it, you can acknowledge it and say, this is what worked for me. It doesn't mean it's going to work for the other person. So one of the things in birth, in the all of that training, that the doula training and the pre, uh, breastfeeding training, was about using language that wasn't you should, you must, this is what sh- what should be happening. It's yes. about bringing it down to what could be possible. What are your options? What works for you? And um, in the in the first part of the birth mapping process, it starts with general considerations, which is where we break down our biases. What are my philosophies? What are my religions? What are my um, <clears throat> personal circumstances right now? And these will change from one birth to another, whether it's your financial situation, your, whether you're partnered or not, what the nature of your relationship is everyone's got bias of some sort and a lot of it is unconscious and it comes from how we were raised Mm -hmm. what our general culture is so with breastfeeding most women have decided in their first trimester whether they're going to breastfeed or not if they've come from a uh, a family or friendship group that didn't breastfeed breastfeed's not breastfeeding's not necessarily going to be high on their radar if they're a career woman Mm-hmm. They might very much say, look, I value breastfeeding, but it's not going to be practical because I need to return to work. So I need I need to know my other options. So sometimes our bias might come into direct conflict with the circumstances that we're in. And so sometimes um, that decision making is balancing what do I really want with what do I have to accept that I need to do? Um, so decision that's why I don't like preferences because preferences is like do you want chocolate ice cream or strawberry ice cream there you know what are my preferences for wonderful things whereas decisions sometimes have to be for something that we don't want but that we need um, that we're not happy about but we recognize is the safest option for us or based on our circumstances preeclampsia suddenly we're having a cesarean so it's an emergency mm-hmm. cesarean before labor if we haven't got a preparation for that that's a, that's an incredibly scary and stressful situation so if we know what that pathway might look like we can say yeah. right so and so is on standby to prepare the house for when we come home meals will be ready um, we know that 
um, the dog's going to be looked after. If we've got other children, um, Great Aunt Ethel is right next door and she's going to be looking after the other other babies. And, you know, COVID um, put in a whole different set of circumstances for women because suddenly babies couldn't come to the hospital or partners couldn't leave or you couldn't have a second support person. So circumstances that were out of our control impacted the decisions we were able to make even though our preference or our bias was telling us I need to support people. Well, something I noticed about um, bias in birth was that our biases are tied to our interpretation and assessment of of risks. So what I find a risk, you may not find a risk. So our interpretation of risk is actually individual. And I think that that's also something to bring our awareness to as well, particularly in birth. And because then I feel like when when we can do that, we then notice other people's um, fears and biases and assessment of risk. And that's, that's risky to you. And so that's why you chose that pathway. And I actually don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Like, yes, sometimes there is um, this social conditioning in birth where, where, um, you know, birth, trauma rates are one in three and so we hear about lots of traumatic births and events and things um and you know I, and i i can appreciate what that does to maybe a woman birthing in a hospital for the first time but i also think that it is our responsibility to acknowledge where our biases are but then also the people around us and are they a good fit for us at that time absolutely and, yeah and i yes. think that that really is what it comes down yeah. to yeah and that yeah. that point of recognizing other people's biases cuz their fears will impact that space in a in a very real way adrenaline is contagious absolutely. so yeah that's a very good point something else i loved about your book it's just brilliant <laughs> everybody needs to have this in their hot little hands but something else was um, i love that you included breastfeeding information But then I also loved that you included preparing for postpartum. And I thought that you asked some really thought-provoking questions about postpartum. Um, So I wanted to ask, what should we consider for mapping out postpartum? That's right. You mustn't stop with the birth. And that birth plans often focus on the the main pathway. And it um, usually ends with skin to skin for an hour um, after the baby's born or it's sort of like baby's out that's it um birth isn't over the moment the baby's out there's the placenta to follow and then the first breastfeed and then the four million breastfeeds that come after that matrescence is the <laughs> gift that um it's the word matrescence has been around since the 70s and i believe you've got a brilliant matrescence pod uh previous episode which definitely needs to be revisited yeah episode two Um, with nikki and i loved that it was brilliant and that that word matrescence is such a gift when we know that we are going through a transition we can slow down and recognize it for what it is and it's not just that first four, four fourth trimester that is the first 12 weeks after the baby's born or the first six depending on who you're talking to that first year is intense the baby goes from this helpless being to this walking or almost walking thing that might be mumbling its first words and personality is starting to shine you are constantly re uh uh reinventing yourself throughout that first year as you yeah, just as you think you've got a handle on things, the, the the baby changes, or something something new comes in, and you're constantly reevaluating. Yep. <laughs> and like as soon as you hit smug zone, bam, done, <laughs> new thing in there. But also having an understanding with your partner, what's their role going to be, particularly if if you're breastfeeding, yeah. because we often add to the workload of the breastfeeding mother by this thing called triple feeding where she'll be feeding the baby directly whilst expressing from the other boob and then um, topping up the baby or someone else giving the baby a bottle for bonding purposes my general rule of thumb is the mother is input and the partner is output 
Um, that's a brilliant way to bond with your baby. Um, and <laughs> you'll soon get very good at it. Um, look, there's lots of opportunities for cuddles. Um, you know, the partner's shoulder can be great for an unsettled burpy baby. Um, you know, keep the mother fed and watered. Like there's so many ways to be supportive without um, interrupting the mother-baby dyad, particularly in those early days when breastfeeding is being established. What we take is what we make. If we're not um, stimulating the boob, and at the beginning, almost constantly, then the milk isn't going to to meet the baby's um, needs. If we keep replacing one feed with a bottle feed, then the body will adjust to that and will only make what is take taken. Likewise, if we're taking more than the baby needs, the mother's going to be constantly engorged and leaking and 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 uncomfortable. So, where's the balance point? And if she's not returning to work. Maybe she doesn't need to add any of that fuss. But if she is returning to work, she may need to find a balance on how to make that work. And there's lots of information out there so that you can find out what's going to work for you based on your circumstances and the level of support you have. If you don't have that support within Mm. your family or friends, what else is in your community that you can tap into? Maybe it's a postpartum doula and um, funds are tight So beforehand, you can ask friends and family who live far away to contribute. Instead of sending us presents, please send us some money so that we can pay for the postpartum um, doula who's going to provide us with some food and some comfort and some care and some guidance. What a brilliant gift that can be. And it's all a learning opportunity. We all grow from, from these difficult things that we go through. So for a lot of women who are coming to birth mapping for their second baby, having had a previously traumatic experience, they're coming with a mass of knowledge. It might be what not to do. It mm. might be, I know better what to avoid, mm. but it's knowledge. It's power. It's something that they can use to reframe yeah. the next uh, the next part of their journey. But they're breaking it down also to find out what was I actually scared of or what came up during that? Because oftentimes when we're in labor, things we didn't realize bothered us. Maybe it's a previous bad sexual experience or um, a sexual assault. Maybe it's something from our childhood. Something comes up for us in that mm. moment and we go, whoa, there's something I didn't know was uh, was sitting in the back of my head there. And now I've got an opportunity to explore that and and grow from it rather than letting it um, fester inside me and um, and cause me distress how can I do that so knowing about um, deep birth debriefing with with a doula perhaps or a a counselor that specializes in birth trauma there are there are opportunities out there to speak with someone who can actually help guide you through the darkness to find the light and and then step into Mm. into your whole power and go yes I am awesome. Well, I'm really interested to actually know about your PhD that you're currently recruiting participants for, I believe, Um, and how you're trying to implement birth mapping in this system, which I just think (sighs) is amazing. Tell me. Viva la revolution. It's like, whoa. So, (laughs) So this has been a really long journey for me. This has been sort of bubbling away inside me for for 10 years and when the book first came out it became kind of apparent to me that I had something pretty spectacular and it it's that that could sound like bragging but it's really it's this extraordinary thing where even I'm pinching myself going that came out of my head oh my goodness I am now the custodian of this amazing thing that could make this huge difference. And because I have a scientific background, of course, I didn't come at it from a marketing point of view. I came at it as a scientist going, well, why does it work? Who does it work for? Does it work for everybody? Could this work in home birth as well as high-risk birth? Or is it only for people who have had a previous birth and know themselves a bit better? Trying to break down who it's working for. And as it unfolded, at first... It was about the mums, about the women. 
then it became about the partners because I was seeing that extraordinary shift where couples were now working together as a team, partners were becoming supporters rather than protectors. But then I was seeing care providers saying, oh, yeah, now we're talking because it's not adding to their workload. It's working with what they already do but making it work the way it's supposed to work, which is about decision-making rather than consent. So it particularly appeals to midwives working in the um, the non-continuity of care model where they want to have relationship-based mm. care, but the system's just not really set up for it. Continuity of care yeah. models really lend itself to birth mapping. You're doing it anyway. There's conversation, relationship building. So... Is there a difference in the different models? So off I walk into, um, you know, ask the only professor that I've ever heard of in midwifery, Professor Hannah Darlin, send her my book. I've never met her. Hey, Hannah, can you just give this a quick read? Tell me what you think about it. Very generously, she did. She looked at the early draft of that map, the book, and said, hey, Catherine, there's a PhD in this. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> And who's going to do that? You are, Catherine. You are. Because I, <laughs> because I already had the qualifications that the next step for me was a PhD. Yes. So it made sense. And I'm like, right. Well, and this is what I mean when I say it, it all just, just aligned. aligned. And I had just had my fourth baby. Um, and I've gone, because that's what you do. You have a baby and then you write a book. But <laughs> like, I just had my baby and I'm like, well, I'm not, I don't really have the capacity right now to take it on. And so for a, a few years, it kind of sat there as just a book, but it kind of went through its own pilot study. So more and more anecdotal feedback came in. And so then I was able to refine it slightly into the book that, Um, now has the naked woman back on the cover again um, with a bit more detail. Uh, Every sentence was agonised over. It needed to be easy to read so that it was not just for people who Mm. were were, PhD educated or not too wordy so that you could flick through it really quickly if you wanted to. Lots of space to scribble notes on um, as as you went along. And every sentence needed to be about the reader not about me or my story and so it really I'm very pleased to hear that as you read it you didn't feel that there was that um, bias coming through because I did agonize over that and um, and so Mm. um, in 2019 um, I signed up with the University of Canberra to do my PhD um, under the guidance of Dr Deb Davis and um, she's uh, Professor Deb Davis, and she's the perfect alignment for me. We um, bounce off each other beautifully. So as a mentor, she is um, absolutely the perfect, um, perfect. You, you, it's really good to have a mentor in your life. I absolutely guarantee you will not regret a mentor. The beauty of this design, this is so exciting. The, the study design is so much about the voice of the women, which is pretty much non-existent Mm. in the literature we've got quantitative outcomes for women um you've got some qualitative that tells you about their experience but it just doesn't go deep it doesn't tell you why the birth plan was was not followed the reason the birth plan wasn't followed might have been that something happened that the mother said you know what forget that um we're going down a different pathway she made a decision doesn't mean the birth plan failed it means she made a decision but it was seen as a failure um yeah birth plans don't work for this reason or they only work in these circumstances so I needed to go deeper so I'm using a, a study design called realist evaluation where the participants are the scientists it's like citizen science like it's so exciting Every woman that will be participating across all the different models of care will get a copy of the book and she'll put it through the paces. She'll be determining everything she does normal. She doesn't have to change anything about what she's ordinarily doing. Just tell me how the book is either benefiting or not, how she's using it, how the care provider responds. And we're using a phone app. 
So as she goes through her journey, she logs into the app and she just makes a short recording to tell me what's happening. So Catherine, this is what happened today. It's like news on the street, Catherine. Like, yeah, it's like investigative journalism at its best. It's really juicy stuff. And then they answer a couple of surveys towards the end and I'll interview some of them in depth. But what we're drawing out is what works for whom in what circumstance? Is birth mapping Mm -hmm. universal? Can it be applied to any circumstance and still work or are there some flaws in it? So this is a brilliant opportunity for Mm. the participants to evolve this process even more so that more and more women can benefit but also once it's in the academic record we've got better evidence to say this is how you should be doing things within the system so in about 20 years um that might be what happens um yeah, because that's how long <laughs> that's it takes. Right. So, But hopefully because this process is also awakening a lot more women to the realities of, yes. of that system. So it's sort of double fold. As this unfolds, more women will also become aware of the fact that there are 11 different models of care across Australia. Like that, that in itself is mm. like, what? 11 different models. That's yeah. extraordinary. There is no one way. How do I determine what's my way within that system? Let's do it. Yeah. I really honestly have loved this conversation with you. It's been sort of a journey in my own head as well as we've sort of been talking and going through it. And I fell in love with the birth map. It was everything that I'd been searching for. I mean, I am done having my babies, but um, that's what I was saying about receiving this new knowledge and passing it on because I can be that person now and be like, hey, you know what? You need this book. You need this map. And I've loved getting to know who's behind the book because I also think that that's a really important part of it as well. So thank you for all that you're doing and best of luck with the PhD. And I'm really excited. I can't wait to read it and see what the outcomes are and yeah, what happens after it's been published as well. Thank you. I'm very excited. It is incredibly exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health, please don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at The Power of Birth on Instagram and Facebook or on our website, thepowerofbirth.net. If you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode.